Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Good. Perfect. So, we started a new conversation last week on the series Love Is. So, Love Is. Um, and the whole kind of premise around that was love is the reason um, that I felt like we should move into a series because, again, the last 18 months has been pretty mind-blowing um, with all that we think back through. I think back to kind of where my family was February, March of last year and kind of what we've been through individually and collectively and then obviously as a church what we've been through individually and collectively as a community as well. Um, and my thought was that we needed to address the topic of love and speak into what does love look like in a world that seems so loveless at times um, or is lacking love. Uh, because for you and I, um, I feel like this is where we can shine the brightest. Um, this is not where the church should shrink back in these moments uh, where we go quiet. These are the times, these are the moments where we need to shine the light of the gospel um, of Jesus and which is truly kind of focusing on the love of God. So this morning we're going to jump right back into 1 Corinthians 13 um, and again we started there last week and we're going to be looking at the same verses that we looked at last week but in a different way and, and I'll, we'll get to that um, in a little bit but just a reminder so in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, um, and he's basically saying to this church, who are all followers of Jesus, um, that something has crept into the church, um, that they've become more accustomed to just doing stuff, just doing things. They're just going through the motions. Um, again, they're doing some great things. Um, they're accomplishing a lot of great things, but they're... They're just doing it not from love. What they have done is they've drifted away from that whole idea of Jesus' love and what that's calling us to. Um, and again, that, that whole idea is a little bit crazy to me to think about that we can do great things, but a lot of times the, the motive behind them doesn't come from love. Um, you, can trip, you can drift off kind of that true north focus, which is love and the love of God at work in our hearts. So let me jump back into... Um, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and read it for us here. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that one can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil or injustice, again, depending on which translation you look at here, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So again, this is the verses that we were looking at last week, 
Um, and again, it's going to sound very familiar, but again, I love this scripture. And over this two-week series, I wanted to unpackage this in depth. Um, what is love? And that was kind of the whole premise of these two weeks. And last week, we looked at the idea of looking for love. But this week, we're going to be looking at the idea of, that's not love. So that's not love. So here's the thing. The big point that I have today as we unpackage this is you cannot effectively show love until you know what love is. You, you just can't. You cannot effectively show love until you know love. So my hope today is that I want us to be a people that don't just show love, but first and foremost, we know love. We know what love is. And sometimes to know what something is, we need to understand what it isn't, what love isn't. Again, looking at it from both sides. So let me open us in prayer before we jump into this today. Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for everything that you're doing in the life of our church here. As we gather in person and for those who are watching online, I pray that we would experience your love and not just hear it but a love that we would experience and feel that would transform our hearts and our minds. Love for those who feel distant or far from you, God. I, I pray that we would, we would realize that your love is never too far. We thank you that you are always there and all we need to do is just turn around and your love so desperately wants to embrace us. I pray that we will be embraced by your love and that we would know your love and be able to show it effectively. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Perfect. So that's not love, right? Now, I am a creature of habits. I love routines. Does anybody else like routine? Yeah, Claire, definitely. Ian, yep. So Meg, Meg, uh, I would put her on the spot, but she's dropping the kids off, but she loves routines. Um, I secretly like routines. I like the predictability of things. Um, I like waking up, which is always a good start. Uh, but I have my daily routines. I get up in the morning. I always shower before I leave the house. I cannot leave the house without showering. Um, I like my morning coffee as soon as I get to the office. It's something that I have to have. I unpack my desk. I put my laptop up coffee is next. It's the first thing that I do. And I feel like I'm the type of person that if I find something I like, I will go back to that place and I will order it again and again and again and again the same way. Um, is anybody else similar to that? Yeah, maybe, maybe. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned my love for my local cafe, Ruby's Roost in Victoria. It's a place that I've slowly learned to love more and more. Um, and this has become a routine for Sawyer and I on Fridays. Um, I, we arrive, we wait in line, we look at the specials that they have in the, the bakery case. We order the latte, we talk to the girl. Um, Sawyer gets his kid's hot chocolate that's a little bit cooler. Um, and then we go outside and we eat it. Um, and sometimes that bakery item is the caramel roll, like I talked about, or it's the blueberry scone, or yesterday, we went yesterday, was the uh, chocolate raspberry scone, which is ridiculous. Um, and the thing that I like about it is that I know what I'm going to get every time. 
Uh, I know what the taste is going to be. I know how happy I'm going to be after. I know what the coffee's going to be like. Um, and for me, that these, these aren't just bakery items. They, they give me kind of a sense of, again, this is probably not a good thing, but a sense of happiness uh, that I'm eating kind of these things. So the twist of my story is that a couple of weeks ago, I found out that the family who owns Ruby's Roost sold and they were moving to South Dakota to open a new bakery. So the people that are now taking over, they had worked there uh, for a couple of weeks to get to know the gist of how things operate, but it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. I, I knew what I wanted, but it wasn't quite the same. So the first thoughts that kind of were running through my head were, yeah, okay, this family's leaving, this kind of sucks, it'll be okay. The girl who was, who was taking over has worked there, that's good, it's going to be okay. Again, the last thought was like, yeah, it's just a cafe. It's just a bakery item. It's okay. Uh, lots of sev- uh, positive self-talk here. But as we were there yesterday and we got our bakery items and we went out to kind of the outdoor trail area where there's some chairs, uh, we were sitting down and my first bite and I was a little disappointed. Uh, and again, it's just a little bit more of my internals going through here and processing. But I knew what I was, I was expecting, but I didn't get what I was expecting. I was expecting this. But then another thing arrived, right? And the crazy thing is, as I kind of reflected over this yesterday and today in preparation to my sermon, I, I understood that if I went to Ruby's Roost for the first time yesterday and I had ordered that thing for the first time, it would have been phenomenal. It tasted great. But in context of what I knew it could have tasted like, it's just a little bit different. But I wouldn't have known any different. But after having the previous experience, I knew what I could measure it up against. So this, yesterday, was not the raspberry chocolate scone, (laughs) Meg's laughing, that I knew that this chocolate raspberry scone could have been. So I know it sounds like an odd illustration, but in the same way, I think that a lot of people experience love without actually experiencing love. They have an understanding of love, but they never truly encounter real love. A lot of people in this world will put up with a form of love, and the reason why is because they've never known any other type of love. That's all they've ever known, and so, to them, that's just what love is. That's how I've always known love. That's the way I was brought up. That's the way my parents loved me. My dad, my mom loved me. This person loved me. That was my experience of love. And the reason why we've never questioned it is because we've got nothing to measure it against. We've got no other options. We've got no other contrast. And this is where we jumped into the series and why this series to me is so important because I believe that a lot of times we settle for the love that we've been served. And what I mean by that is that maybe you've experienced love and I believe everybody here has experienced some form of love whether it's a little or a lot, but we often settle for the love that we've been served because that's all we've ever known. And this is again why where Paul jumps in and he's basically saying to the people in Corinth, he's saying, hey, in order for you to truly understand what love is, I need you to understand what love isn't. He gives us a contrast to look at these things. He says, hey, that's actually not love. Like if you truly love people, if you truly love one another, if you truly, then that's not 
how love looks. That's not what love looks like. That's not the raspberry chocolate scone. You don't have to put up with that. This is not what love is. And the way he does this is actually quite brilliant by the way he says it. He says, hey, before I jump into what love is, I need to show you what it isn't. And the reason why is because he's speaking to this church in Corinth. And last week we we talked a little bit about them. This church in Corinth is doing all these amazing things. They're healing people. They're bringing people to Christ. They're, They're doing a lot of great things inside and outside the church community. And he's saying, This is all great stuff. You're doing a fantastic job, but hold on a sec. There's no love in anything that you're doing. And this love that you think you're showing actually isn't love at all. It's not love at all. And I want to show you what love is not so that we can then illuminate what love is. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want you to know that, hey, that's not love. So those things that maybe you've experienced or maybe the things that you've been doing, again, we will be breaching those today. And Paul is saying that when you encounter Christ in love, and again, not a human love, but that agarpe love that we talked about last week, the supernatural love of God, the love that can transform our hearts and our minds, it changes what we do and what we don't do. It transforms our lives. So we don't have to be like that anymore. We love like this. We don't have to settle for that raspberry chocolate scone, but we've got this. So as we start to go through this, Paul sets a checklist, right? He, we all probably know the love is checklist, um, the, the, the let us check your heart, and ask yourself, have I allowed this to come into my heart? Have I allowed myself to allow this wrong form of love at times or what I think is love to creep into my heart? So maybe we need to bring a little bit of correction to that. So what is not love? Point number one, if we could throw that one up on the screen. The first one that Paul says is love is not jealous. So another translation, like I had mentioned earlier, is it doesn't envy. So jealousy and envy. Can I ask you guys a question? Has anybody been jealous or envious? Yeah? No hands. Meg? Yes, definitely. (laughs) Have you ever been jealous or envious? And Paul is saying, love doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. If the perfect love of God is at work in your heart, that shouldn't be coming out of you. That jealousy and envy. Now again... This is hard. Again, the people of Corinth, when they heard this letter, when they got this letter, they were destroyed by this letter. They were, they're like, what? Like, he's writing this to us. This is, a, this is a pointed letter to them. This is a hard thing for us to take, especially. And especially for us now in the 21st century, we live in a social media age. Once upon a time, you could be ignorant to other people's lives. Does anybody remember that? Before social media? Because you weren't them and you weren't in their life. Right now, we have access to everybody's world. We can see what they're doing 24-7. Once upon a time, it was just status updates. MySpace, Facebook. Then it turned into pictures. Now it's stories. And now it's minute by minute, second by second live videos. You can be a part of anybody's world around the world. 
You can go into their lives. You can see everything. And what that creates in us sometimes is this thing of jealousy and envy. It can creep into our lives. And I believe that there are two types of jealousy and envy. The two ways that jealousy and envy will outwork itself in our lives. Firstly, there's the one that we all know. It makes you want to have what they want. That's what jealousy and envy does. You look at these things and you say, I want that. I wish I had that. You look at Instagram. I want that. I want that holiday. I want that house. I want that status. I want those followers. That's envy. I want, I want, I want. But the second side, the really, really ugly side of jealousy and envy is not so much I want that. It's I would just prefer if they didn't have it. That's the really ugly side of envy and jealousy where it's not this I want it. It's like, you know what? I would be pretty pumped if they didn't have it. I would be happy if that failed. And being really honest, I'm sure that's crept into a lot of our minds. Again, not on purpose, but it's there. And it's funny that the human condition, sometimes we are happy when people fail. Why? Because a lot of times we're like, well, you know what? If I don't have it, I don't want you to have it either. And that's how this ugliness of jealousy and envy, when it gets into your heart and it poisons your love, it makes you respond. But here's the thing. Jealousy, by definition, guess what it means? It just means not satisfied. Not satisfied. The only reason you can experience, or the only reason why you experience jealousy or envy is because you're not satisfied. Case in point, buffet restaurants. I don't know if there's many around these days. God bless the Golden Corral that we saw open up in Coon Rapids and then a month later it was shut down. Um, it actually opened to lines out the door and you, you couldn't get a reservation, but then funnily enough, it was closed. Um, we went there once and it was disgusting. Uh, maybe that's why. Um, but when I was in college, um, I would frequent a place called Wok Boo. Um, and it was called that because the letters F-F-E-T wouldn't light up anymore. So instead of Wok Buffet, it was Wok Boo. Um, and it was an all-you-can-eat buffet style. And for a college student th with no money, it was unbelievable. You could go there, you could eat copious amounts of food for five bucks, and it was unreal. Um, you would eat enough to make you sick. Um, and I think that was the point. Um, but the thing is, once you were finished eating all this food, and then you made that slow and very shameful walk out of the restaurant, um, I guarantee there's not one plate that you could walk past and see anything that you desired. It's not like I'm going to eat all this food and then walk past your plate and be like, oh man, John, you have that good cheesecake. I wish I could take that from you now. No, because I'm full. I'm satisfied or beyond satisfied with what I've already taken in. And in the same way, the only reason why we envy, the only reason why we have that jealousy in our heart is because maybe in that area in our lives, we haven't had that full satisfaction yet. And what Paul is saying is that when you and I encounter Christ for real, what this love does in us, his love completes us. 
So I want to submit to you that if there's any area in your life that is currently under a moment of envy or jealousy, come to God and say, God, I want you to bring satisfaction to that area in my life. Because I'm envying and I'm jealous of that person or that thing and I know it's not right. And I know that you are the one who can complete me and satisfy me. So I I don't want to look at them and their joy. I want you to bring me that joy and that satisfaction. God, give me what you have for me because I don't want to look at what they have. I want to look at what you have for me. You satisfy me. You complete me. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, love is not jealous. Love actually experiences a satisfaction from Christ. Therefore, I don't need to be jealous or envious anymore. Point two. Love is not boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. And this is a big one because basically when he starts to speak into this whole idea of boastful or proud or rude or demanding its own way, what Paul is really speaking into is pride. He's saying that pride and love cannot coexist together. They're not meant to coexist. When you have pride in your heart, guess what's not there? Love. And I've realized that in the eight weeks that I've been with you here, I actually haven't shared much about Australia. So I'm going to rectify that today. Uh, And the fascinating wildlife that we have in Australia, which is number one reason, two, three, four, 37, 64, why people will not go to Australia is because of some of the wildlife. So here we go. In Australia, if we could put up that first picture, Claire, we have a spider called the Southern Cross Spider. It's about the size of your hand um, when they're fully grown. And the Southern Cross Spider, what it does is it spins this very beautiful web, a very large web. And what it does, when the web is finished, it'll actually go back over and it'll use this white film and it will create these extra lines. If you can show the second one. These extra lines that are a little bit more luminous um, and it spreads out into a cross figure across those lines. And people ask, what's the deal with those extra zigzag lines? The reason is... When the spider sits in the middle of its web and it's surrounded by a larger, wider, thicker film that reflects, it's making itself look bigger. So when the predators do come and grasshoppers love these guys, praying mantises love these guys for their size, but again, when they seem bigger, the predators will not attack them. So there's a lot of different types of spiders that do something similar to this. They'll, they'll weave a basket around it or they'll do the X mark and they'll sit inside of that X. So it projects itself as something bigger than it's not. And I want to speak to that thought that as the Southern Cross spider adds things to make itself look bigger, so the human condition does the same thing. Always adding things to our lives to making ourselves look bigger. I want to appear bigger than I really am. I want to appear more important important than I really am. That's what pride does. 
as long as I appear bigger and better and more successful than everybody else, then that's enough. But that's not love, is what Paul's telling us. That's not what love does. And here's the thing. When pride and boastfulness has come into your life, what's the root cause of that? And I started to think that through. Where does that come from? Why do I feel the need to do that? Why do I feel the need to always make myself look bigger or seem bigger or make myself more presentable to others? Well, the root cause comes back to insecurity. The root cause of pride, I want to make myself look bigger and better to other people, is because on the inside, I don't feel that way. I feel incomplete. I feel unsuccessful. I don't feel good enough. And so I tried to put it out there that I am, because if I can fool you, it doesn't really matter what's on the inside. As long as you think that, that's what insecurity does on the outside. Now here's the thing about insecurity. Insecurity will make us either feel superior or inferior. In other words, I'm going to feel really good when I'm around certain people, I know that I can look better, better in front of or feel more successful in front. But then when I get around other people, I know who are better than me or are going to make me feel inferior. There's this pendulum swing back and forth on the inside of inferiority and superiority. And that's destructive to our lives. We've all been there. I'm sure we've all had these moments where you're around certain people and you feel, man, they're just more successful than me. They're a better parent than me. They have their life together. I feel inferior because I'm measuring my stuff against theirs. But then if you go to the other side, man, I'm so glad I'm not them. I'm way further ahead, way more attractive, way more successful, way more whatever. There's two sides to that. This is the pendulum that Paul is talking about. And Paul is saying, that's not love. Love is not boastful or proud. It is not rude in this way. It's not trying to do that. It's not. Love doesn't go between superior and inferior motives and emotions. Instead, love will actually free us from that insecurity. Now here's what's so freeing about the love of God. It frees me from my pride and my boastfulness. Now, what I'm about to say might blow your mind, and it might be the first time you've ever heard it, but God doesn't love everybody the same. Think about that. God doesn't love everybody the same. It's kind of an outrageous thought. But He doesn't. This is where you can get such joy in life because God actually doesn't love everyone the same. He actually loves everyone uniquely. It's very different. Love tells me that, hey, I'm not just one amongst the crowd who's trying to compete to be the better one amongst the crowd. No, I am unique amongst the crowd. And I'll tell you this, it's the same way as a parent. I don't love my boys the same. Because they are each unique and wonderful and intricate in their own way. It would be unfair to them if I loved them the same. Because they're not the same. I love them uniquely. 
So if you want to get that, if you want that self-esteem injection into your life, think about how much God loves you uniquely. Stop trying to be everybody else because everybody else is already taken. I'm sure you've heard that before. Everyone else, they have a unique from God, love from God for themselves. And God's saying, I have a unique love for you. And that starts to bolster me up on the inside because I am uniquely made. Therefore, I am uniquely loved. I don't have to measure myself against you. I don't have to compare myself against you because I am uniquely made and uniquely loved. Just like the fingerprints on a hand, so is every person on the planet today. We are unique in the sight of God. We are loved uniquely, not loved the same. And that was very freeing to me and liberating because I don't need to compare. I don't need to look at people's lives. All I need to do is look at the one who made me and look at how he loves me and say, God, keep filling me with that unique love that you have for me. That's what love does. Point number three. Love does not keep track of mistakes. Love does not keep track of mistakes. Paul says it's not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. Now this is a big truth. I think every single one of us has or have had a mistake diary. Anybody? A mistake diary? What I mean by that is when other people wrong you, you make a little list. Yep, they did that today. She did that to me today. They did that. They said this. I find with Meg, when we have a disagreement or an argument, I'm really good, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a bad way. I'm really good at not getting hysterical, but I can get historical. Right? I can look back into the past and be like, yeah. I'm doing this because you did this to me months ago or weeks ago or years ago. It's something that I struggle with a lot. I like to think that I have a pretty good memory. Meg was saying I don't, but I think I do. Um, it's like we have these mistake diaries that we write of people. And I recently read um, that in one of the ancient Polynesian cultures, when somebody wronged somebody, they would do this. They would write down the thing that they did against them. And they would actually put it up. Or they would write the markings on the inside of their huts that as they laid in bed at night, they would look up and they would read and they would never forget what that person did to them. Why would they do that? Because they wanted to get even. They wanted to get back at them. They wanted to know the pain that that person caused them. The only reason you keep a record is because one day you want to hold somebody in account for what happened. One day you want somebody to pay for that thing. But guess what? Paul is saying that's not love. Love doesn't do that. So when you let the love of Christ fully infiltrate your heart, guess what? We throw out the mistake diary. Some of us, including me, need to hear that today. Because we've been keeping that mistake diary. Again, you might not be doing it intentionally, but it's there. And you're waiting for that opportune time to bust it out, 
to use it as ammo against the other person. But that's not what love is. Love says, I will not keep record of wrongs. I'm going to keep that. Well, you might say, but that's not fair. Chris, that's not fair. That person hurt me or that person said something to me. That's not fair. But that's why we serve a merciful God. This God could have very well pulled out a mistake diary on us. But instead he said, I will not count your sins against you. And love will cover a multitude of sins. So when love is truly at work in your heart, as much as you want to pen down the mistakes of others, you quickly need to recognize, my goodness, God could have done the same for me, but yet he did not. And that liberating, freeing forgiveness that he gave me, I will extend to others. Why? Because, he, because love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't do that. Point four, love does not rejoice over injustice. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out. Now, I've got to, got to be honest with you here. <clears throat> I wrestled with this last point because I st- as I started to think about it more and more in context of point number three, if love doesn't keep records of wrongs, then how does justice happen? Like, if there's no record, then how can justice come into play? Because all the wrongs have been taken care of, right? But then I started to realize, and I wrote this down, love does, does cover up sin, but it doesn't cover up injustice. It doesn't. And it kind of sounds like a paradox here. So what am I talking about? Well, let me share you a, a story about a woman in the Bible. And you've heard this before. This woman in the Bible was caught in the act of adultery. And in the Bible, it says that she was literally caught in the act. She couldn't try and trick her way out of it. She couldn't say, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, I had an alibi, I'm somewhere else. It was an accusation. She had been caught right there and then. Now, she was brought before Jesus, and a whole bunch of people were looking on at this growing scene. And they say to Jesus, The law says she deserves to die for this. And guess what? They were right. The law was there. It was true. There there wasn't something that they made up on the spot. That was actually the Jewish law at the time. And the Bible says Jesus kneels down and he starts to write in the dirt. And then he stands up and he says, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We've heard this before. And then the Bible says, one by one, the older and the younger, they all walked away. And Jesus replied to the woman, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no. Well, neither do I. So go and leave your life of sin. Now, I remember reading this story many times. And if you read that story at face value, it's easy to think that, oh, what he's saying is when you make mistakes, it's all good. God's there. He's going to cover it up. He's going to clean it up for me. He's going to clean up my mistakes. Like it never happened. God is love, right? He's just going to kind of clean it up. But in doing that, we miss the whole point. 
We missed the whole point of the story. The reason why that woman didn't get stoned to death that day wasn't because, well, Jesus is just going to cover it up. It's because not too long from that day, Jesus was going to die on the cross for her mistakes. He was going to get the stones on her behalf. So love covers up sin, but it doesn't cover up injustice. Why? Because God is a just and loving God, and punishment must come. Consequences must come. But guess who the punishment fell on? Not on the woman, it fell on Jesus. So that's why love rejoices when justice wins out. And love did rejoice on that day when Jesus died on the cross because justice had to have been served. And Jesus said, serve it on me instead. Let me take that for her. Love does cover up sins, but it doesn't cover up injustice because the injustice was taken on our behalf through the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what love is. And you need to hear that today and be reminded of it every day. A lot of these things that we read, we can think, man, you're right. I haven't done those things. I have been jealous. I have been envious. I have been rude. I've been proud. And I've done all these things. And what's wrong with me? I don't deserve to be loved that way. You're right. Neither do I. And that's why the wrath of God fell so hard upon Jesus so that we could be loved the way that He deserved to be loved. And from that love, we can now love others from that same source. It's that supernatural agape love that I didn't deserve, but Christ gave it to me through the work of the cross. And now I live from that place loving others. That is the truth of the gospel. And you see, when we recognize what love isn't, it can point us to what love is. And love is God. A God who, even in our envy and in our pride and our boastfulness and our arrogance, in our insecurities, in our fears, in our injustices, He said, you know what? I can't turn a blind eye to that. But I will take the cross for you because I love you. And that is so freeing and so liberating to know that love encounters us and changes us. But understand, we need to come back to recognizing what real love is. That's what love is. Love is the work of Jesus. Love is the work of the cross. And then when I reflect upon that, I reflect upon what love isn't. And I say, that's not love. All the things I've looked to in this life to give me love, that's not love. He is love. And He's the only one who can love me the right way. So as I begin to close here today, I want to challenge you because I think sometimes we have actually looked at this 1 Corinthians 13 again like a checklist. That's what we look at it like. 
we can look at it like a moral to-do list, a checklist that says, yeah, I've got to be this, I've got to be this, I've got to be this. I can't be arrogant, I can't be rude, or I can be this. But here's the thing. To try and achieve that in your own flesh, you wouldn't have needed Jesus. So what this points to is not a checklist, like what we were talking about last week. This is not about us now behaving a certain way or trying to change our behavior. First and foremost, it's about encountering God. And from our encounter, our behavior will naturally change. That's why I want, you to, that's why I want to encourage you last week, this week, and every day, let the love of God encounter you. That's why I wanted us to pray those prayers together last week, to encounter Jesus together. Because you know what? We shouldn't be rude. We shouldn't be boastful. We shouldn't be proud. We shouldn't be any of those things. And if they are, are at work in your heart, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, but it does mean that you need to let the love of God do some more work in you. And we all need work. God, let, me, let your love fill me. And as we finish here, the beautiful part about it, you and I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's a free gift. And all the things that Jesus did on our behalf through the work of the cross, He did it because He loves us. Because He wants a relationship with us so that we can encounter that love, a real love. The love that maybe you're experiencing right now it seems pretty good, but in context, it's nothing compared to real love. It's nothing in context to that raspberry chocolate scone, the real one. And so in the same way, I want to encourage you to open yourself up to experience godly love. Open yourself up to experience God's love for your life. And I believe that wherever you are, whether you're here in person or watching this online, that you can experience that today. So let me close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. We thank you that you died on the cross for our sin and for our shame. We thank you for your unrelenting love, your unique love for each of us. Jesus, help us to live for you, to walk with you, to experience you today, tomorrow, and every day. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.